Good morning. It's my joy to get to introduce a family that wants this to be their church home. Scott and Lindsay Bailey, where are you? There you are. Y'all mind standing where you are in the back? We got their picture on the screen. I'll tell you a little bit about them. Uh, Scott and Lindsay are originally from Centerville. Um, their earlier days were at the Centerville Church of Christ. Scott attended Fried Hardeman. Lindsay went to MTSU. Scott is a nurse. Uh, and not just any nurse, he was recently named director of the TriStar Spring Hill ER. So I think that tells us a little bit about him. And Lindsay's been in education for 15 years uh, as a teacher, uh, assistant principal, both public and private. Currently, she's loving teaching second grade at CA. Knox is in fifth grade. He's part of Gun Dogs and loves duck hunting. And Sloan is in third grade, and she loves music and art. And I want to t uh, also call your attention to that bottom right-hand corner. That's Hank. That tells you all you need to know about this family, doesn't it? Uh, get to know the Baileys. Introduce yourself. There's a lot of us, just one of them, and uh, we want them to quickly feel at home. Uh, if you're looking for a church home, the door is open wide. We are not a perfect people. Uh, we are redeemed people. Uh, we have found the perfect Lord, and uh, we love to open our doors to others who are searching, and especially if you need a, a church home, we'd love this to be that for you. Uh, we're in a series walking through the last week of Jesus' life. We're going to culminate with Easter in two weeks. Next week, I'm going to take a Sunday off, uh, take the week off, actually. Uh, we'll see you spring break. Greg Lee will be here next week. Many of you know, love Greg Lee, Sonny's son. Uh, he's spoken for us uh, a number of times, and he'll be with us next week, and then we'll talk about the resurrection on Easter Sunday. Today, we're going to talk about the death of Jesus on the cross. We all need heroes. We need someone as an inspirational model for us. There's just something, I think, the way we wired, uh, we are wired, that we want to look up to someone, someone that we can model our lives after. The Apostle Paul saw this even in himself with all of his training, with all of his education, with all of his experience. He needed a model. And so he said in 1 Corinthians 1.11, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. I think one of our challenges today is our lack of legitimate heroes. I think we're hungry for a hero, but that's especially challenging when our choices are between Chris Rock and Will Smith, right? It's like, we don't like the choices. We're also dealing with a time where the scrutiny of the press makes it so hard to really look up to someone because we know a whole lot about them. Think about this. There's a, a rising athlete who becomes a star and a lot of success in, in their field, and, and you, you want them to do well, and so you start following them, and then you read the report. They got arrested for drunk driving. Or maybe it's a musician or an actor, and they come on the scene, and they're doing so well, and they seem to crash and burn. Even in politics, you just see this rising star coming, and then the press gets a hold of them, and you learn all kinds of things. And you wonder how much of that is true or not true, and you're not sure. But what we see in all of these is they're just humans, and they have feet of clay, and they often disappoint and because of that, they're not worthy of our total allegiance. But there, again, is something within us where we hunger for that. 
someone that we can give our total allegiance. Well, that's Jesus Christ. No one was more brilliant, practical, compassionate, charismatic, demanding, or courageous than Jesus. And he had no character flaws. He was a perfect example for us, even when Pilate examined him. Remember, we talked about this last week. Pilate had to say, I find no fault in this man. It was evident to him. I want you to notice, Jesus set an inspirational example of how we are supposed to live and die. He does both. Christianity is more than just a system of moral values. It's more than just how you live or even just what you believe. It is the worship of Jesus Christ. He's the perfect model. But more than that, he's our Lord. He's our Savior. And he's a great example to follow. I've used this verse a number of times, kind of like a theme verse it's become for this whole study. 1 Peter 2.21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. So today, for the next couple of moments, let's just study, walk through the death of Jesus on the cross. Let's begin by looking at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. Paul wrote this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. This was important. This was a first importance. This was a priority. Jesus came, lived, died, and was brought to life again. There is nothing more important than this. This is where we start. This is where we end. We never move past this. That's what Paul was saying. And I hope you know that. I hope you know this is of first importance. So let's focus on what Jesus endured and how he responded during these final hours of his life. I think when we begin to grasp this, the pressure, the pain, the suffering, it can only help us to grow in our love and appreciation for him. So if you're following along on the outline, here's the first point I want us to get. Jesus' death was divinely planned. Jesus' death was divinely planned. This was no accident. This was not because the plan didn't work and so he ended up dying because he was not successful. This was planned by God from the beginning of the world. Revelation 13 verse 8 says, The Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. That's who he is. This was the plan. Even before God created mankind, he knew Adam and Eve would sin. And they would need a plan to redeem them. Isaiah wrote his prophecy 700 years before Jesus was born. And in chapter 53 especially, he was talking about how the Messiah was coming. And how he'd have to die. Look on the screen. I just want to lift out some of these, these words that speak so much about what Isaiah was trying to communicate. He was despised, rejected, sorrows, grief, stricken, smitten, afflicted, pierced, crushed, chastisement, wounds, oppressed, slaughter. The mindset of the Jews in Jesus' day, though, wasn't the lamb who would come and die for them. They were looking for a political messiah. 
They were so weary of being oppressed by Rome. They were wanting someone to set them free. So they were looking for a king in this realm, in this world. So they must have overlooked these prophecies of the Old Testament that would say the Messiah was going to die. But years before his birth, it was predicted, it was told again and again that Jesus' death would be substitutionary. That's an important word. That's an important concept to understand what's going on here. Psalm 22 was written hundreds of years before death by crucifixion was even invented. Some will say that this is what Jesus was quoting from. And I just put a couple of the verses from chapter 22 of Psalm 22 to kind of help you to see this is exactly what Jesus said. What's going on? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All who seek me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. A band of evil men has encircled me. They pierce my hands and my feet. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots from my clothing. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. Do you remember when Jesus was born, the wise men traveled from the east to come to meet this king of the Jews? And do you remember the three gifts they brought? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh? Now we, we're familiar with that, but what did that mean? Why those three? Well, gold was a, a, a gift that was suitable for a king. Frankincense was used by the high priest. Those fit what we know of Jesus. But what about myrrh? Myrrh was known to be what was used to prepare a body for burial. So even at Jesus' birth, you get this foretelling of what was to come. Historians said that when Jesus was either a, a child or, or maybe a teenager, there was a, an, a, an incredible insurrection against the Romans. Now, the Romans were able to squash that, but to, to make sure it never happened again... They wanted to make sure that the Jews never did this again. So they crucified a Jew for every 10 meters along a road for a distance of 16 kilometers. That would mean Jesus and all those living at that time would have witnessed about, I did the math, about 1,700 dying on crosses spaced every 30 feet. Think about from the Columbia Courthouse to Spring Hill. That would make quite an impression for a child or a teenager to see that. I read several different accounts. Some say it was as many as 2,000 people. So when Jesus would say the Son of Man must be crucified, he knew what he was talking about. He had witnessed it. The people had witnessed that. So we think about all the courage of what's going on with the people in Ukraine, how both the military and even the civilians are having to stand up and fight, and we're praying for them, we're praying for peace to come. We think, what courage, what courage it must be to not know if you're going to live or die. But think about what Jesus went through. He went to the cross knowing he was going to die. This was not a, I might not make out this out of this alive. This was, I know I'm going to die. That takes incredible courage. And he spoke plainly about this to his disciples. Matthew 20, verse 18 and 19. See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he'll be raised on the third day. 
He was giving his disciples a play-by-play. This is exactly how it's going to go down. Just before the Passover, Matthew 26, verse 2, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Remember how many times when Jesus was early in his ministry, he was healing people, he was feeding people, and the crowds were gathering. He would say again and again, my time has not yet come, the hour is not yet here. Remember that? How he would kind of put them off, hang on, hang on, hang on. But John's gospel records a change. In chapter 16, Jesus shares his heart with his disciples. And then in chapter 17, he begins this prayer for them. In verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. The hour has come. There is nothing about the death of Jesus that was accidental. All of this was planned, even down to the timing of it. God had planned it from the beginning. I read where we should not use the phrase, Jesus spilled his blood for us. Have you heard that? We we say that sometimes, Jesus' blood was spilled for us. And the comment there, maybe not choosing that way to describe it, because the very connotation of spilling is an accident. You spill like you don't mean to. You accidentally spilled it. This was no accident. The blood was poured out. It was freely given. Again, one of those lines that we sang this morning, like a robe over his body. It was no accidental spilling. John 10 verse 17 says, For to this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down. I also have the authority to take it up again. So not just a martyr's death, it was a deliberate death. Secondly, Jesus' death was extremely painful. Let's talk about this, because we've heard about, we talked about the death of Jesus, shall we say, all of our lives. In fact, because of that, it can become so familiar that we become numb to it. We're just so aware of this that we don't even hear what we're saying. We don't hear what we're reading. We don't don't hear what we're singing. We take it for granted. We may get more upset about an animal suffering than Jesus dying for our sins. But I want to take a moment and just kind of walk through what the Bible tells us here. So most of these verses will be from Matthew 27. If you want to open your Bibles, you can follow along. They're going to be on the screen. I'll share a few more. But Matthew 27, verse 32 says, As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, that compelled this man to carry his cross. Now, remember where we were last week in our message when we talked about the different trials, but not just the trials that Jesus went through, all that he endured that night. He was beaten to the point of death. Even before the crucifixion began, he was struck again and again by the Sanhedrin and the temple guards. Herod's soldiers took their turn hitting him repeatedly. Pilate had him scourged. Not uncommon at that time that the scourging was so severe that not all survived that. Then the Romans struck him on the head with a staff. He was beaten again and again and again from trial to trial to trial. No wonder he stumbled under the weight of the cross. Verse 33, when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. 
Some scholars suggest there were a group of women who had sort of developed this ministry, if you will, of providing a type of uh, pain medicine to kind of lessen the extremity of the pain for those who were suffering. When I read through that, I wonder if that had its roots back to that crucifixion of those thousands of their own Jews. We've got to do something to help them. But Jesus said no to the help. Then in verse 35, it reads, And when they had crucified him, And when they had crucified him, have you ever, ever noticed how often the Bible understates things? And when they had crucified him, nails were driven into his hands. Sometimes you'll see an artist depicting you know, a scar in the palm or maybe even uh, in the crucifixion, like the, the spike going through the hand. Technically, it wouldn't be through the hand. You may have studied this before. It would be through the wrists. Doctors will tell you that if you were to actually nail a person through the hand, the body weight would be such that it would tear loose. And so that would not be uh, a workable solution. So the wrists were considered a part of the hands. And we got to understand that. We say someone was handcuffed. But the handcuffs don't go on the hands, they go on the wrist. It's kind of all-inclusive, and so that's kind of what's going on here. Nails were also driven through the feet. So driving these spikes, these nails, through the hands and the feet, not only would hold the body up, but it would also, in its own, create extreme pain. The ones through the feet, though, would be driven onto a platform or a base, and this would give a sort of support for the body. It would also prolong the process, making it last longer, more painful. The victim could push up to catch a breath. The cross was then tilted up and then dropped into a hole or a socket that had been prepared for it. And then the person, the victim, was left there to die. Now today, we consider ourselves a civilized culture, so if we ever get to a point where we, we think that the death penalty is needed, we will opt for something that's quick. We would say humane, something that's painless, you know, electrocution or lethal injection, just quick, get it over with. But in that day, at that time, the whole idea of death by crucifixion is you're making a point, not just to the criminal, but for everybody watching, don't do this or you're going to end up like this. And so there was a, an intentional method creation to prolong the process, to make them suffer, to make it horribly long. Every breath was painful. One author suggested that victims would go unconscious, causing the body to relax, but the body would then shift, creating new excruciating pain that would bring them back to consciousness. Eventually, they would die of dehydration, heart failure, but most often suffocation. Tacitus, a Roman historian, said it was a despicable way to die. So much so, the Romans would not allow the Roman citizen to be put to death by crucifixion. Not at all. It was reserved for common criminals, for slaves, for rebels. But the Son of God was crucified. 
If the physical pain is not enough, let's also talk about some emotional pain that's going on here. Look at verse 35. They divided his garments among them by casting lots. Now today, sometimes we will just be repulsed when we see a family who are bickering over the estate, the inheritance, when the person who's dying is, is laying right there in the bed in front of them. Hey, how could you be so tasteless? But think about what's happening here. These Roman soldiers are gambling for Jesus' clothing while he's dying on the cross right there in front of him. Verse 36, and they sat down and kept watch over him there. For our culture, our day and time, our understanding of life and death, we do all we can to help a person die with dignity. Even at the hospital, the nurse will usher all the, the friends away and just have just immediate family now for these last couple of moments. We'll do all we can to reserve that moment of dignity. Even a dog knows to crawl under a porch to die alone. We understand that. But the Son of God hung there, unclothed, fighting for every breath, enduring this ghastly experience while his enemies are gawking at him, just watching him. Verse 37, over his head they put a charge against him which read, this is, the king, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. You might remember the religious leaders didn't like that and said, no, you need to change that, saying he claimed to be the King of the Jews. And Pilate pushed back and said, what I've written, I've written. At least there's some partial truth to that. He was the king of the Jews. We know he's the king of kings. Verse 38, when the two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left, Isaiah had predicted he would be numbered among the transgressors at his death. You know, we don't like to talk about death. This has been a really hard, this week for me, studying this, for you hearing this, thinking about this is hard. We don't like to talk about death, but I was thinking, how would I like to die? I thought about that. I would like to die with my family with me at the beach, sunset. I would just like the movies, you know, where you close your eyes and it's the painless, and I'd be about 95 years of age. How about that? But we don't get to choose. Jesus is surrounded by strangers, enemies, and died a most painful death at age 33. Verse 39, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, you who would destroy the temple, rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. They are gloating over his misery. It's like at that point, they can't leave it alone. They're still poking at him. So also the chief priest, verse 41, and with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him if he desires him. Sometimes we talk about reaching a breaking point. You know, somebody pushing your button. You know, you hold it all together, and then the dam bursts, and you just have to let it go. We can only wonder how much Jesus was holding back. They beat him and scourged him to the point of death, nailed him to the tree, and said, if that was not enough, then just pile on the mockery, the insults, the sarcasm. In that setting, Luke records God saying to his father, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Amazing.
amazing love, how can it be that you, my God, would die for me? As much as the physical pain was hard and the, the, the emotional difficulty, some say the spiritual pain would have been the worst. Let's talk about that. Verse 35, from the sixth hour, there was darkness all over the land till the ninth hour. Darkness all over the land. J. Vernon McGee suggests that God darkened the sun so that people could not see clearly what was happening. Maybe. I mean, he's a Bible scholar, but my mind goes the opposite direction. I think God wanted the whole world, not just Golgotha. The Bible says all over the land to know the Son of God was dying. This was a moment that changed history. Verse 46, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I cannot, I, I do not understand this. So I can't explain it. I have read this all my life, trying to understand what is going on here. Some commentaries explain it was during this time that God was placing on Jesus all the sins of mankind. And the Bible talks about that. Isaiah 53, 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Was that a moment where God was going all the way back to the garden when Adam and Eve first disobeyed and then Noah got drunk and then Abraham lied and then Jacob deceived and Moses murdered the Egyptian David stilled Uriah's wife and then killed him Paul persecuting the Christians all the people that Hitler took out what's going on now in Europe, the sins of Randy Owens and every one of you, was God at that moment, and even sins not yet committed, putting all those? Jesus became sin, the Bible says. And it was so much sin that the world became black. Last week, you remember how we ended the message. We were talking about the words of the mob, what was going on. When, when Pilate asked him, who do you want me to release to you, Jesus or Barabbas? And the mob said, Barabbas. Well, what do you want me to do with Jesus? And the, and the mob said, crucify him. And he said, well, what, what has he done? And, and the mob said, crucify him. Some of you mentioned that you could not do that because you were so convicted of your own guilt. You knew. You knew. You couldn't say it even. The writer of Hebrews mentioned this very idea that those who continue to sin are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Jesus took on our sin. And because of that, He experienced the separation from His Father. Do you remember back in the garden where God created this perfect, this perfect utopia where, where the man was able to walk with God 
And they had this perfect relationship until he sinned. And when the man sinned, Adam felt alienated, shame, and he hid. You remember that? So God comes along and asks the question, where are you? Now, here's Jesus. The Bible calls him the second Adam, takes on all the sin of the world, alienating him from the Father. And so he calls out to his Father, God, where are you? Jesus had the perfect relationship with his Father. Lived on earth and never blew it without sin. But when Jesus took on all of our sin, our greed, our lust, our selfishness, our hatred, our jealousy. Jesus was separated from the Father. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? Jesus experienced alienation from God and whatever hell may be like, and and the Bible describes it in a lot of ways, at the top of that list has to be separation from God. And that brings us to the final point. Jesus' death had an eternal purpose. Jesus' death had an eternal purpose. It was that purpose that makes this that important. Matthew 27 and 50 And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. John records him saying, it is finished. Mission complete. He came to earth to live for us and now he died for us. He did it. Not just a martyr's death, not a hero's death. This was a vicarious death. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. We're going to unpack that verse in our small group studies tonight. I hope you'll be a part of one. But look at Matthew's gospel here, how he lists several natural, supernatural events that happened in addition to these three hours of darkness Verse 51, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This symbolized new access to God like never before. Remember inside the temple? That that holy of holies, that that smallest place, that's where God was, the Ark of the Covenant. The only one that could go in there was the high priest, and even he only once a year. That curtain separated all the people. From the presence of God. And now, because of Jesus, it's been ripped. It's been torn. Symbolizing every worshiper has direct access to God. Look at Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Do you see the parallel there? Why it was ripped? Because of Jesus' death, you don't have to go through another person to talk to God, ever. You have direct access to your Creator. No priest, no saint, no Mary, no preacher, no elder, no one. You. You have direct access to God. Verse 51 continues with details only in Matthew's Gospel. The earth shook. The rock split. 
the tombs were opened. Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Can you imagine that? We don't talk about this detail much, do we? That you have this resurrection that coincides with Jesus' resurrection. And they go inside, not just anyone, not everyone. It says the saints. Can you imagine your dead grandmother coming knocking on your door? Hey, I'm here to tell you, you need to follow Jesus. I guarantee you, you'll be in church the next Sunday. <laughs> How could you not? What an, crazy, an incredible moment here. You ever wonder if that's why there were 3,000 people who had gathered there at Pentecost to hear that first sermon? They had been so impacted, not just by the hours of darkness, all these signs. They heard them. They witnessed them. They experienced them. Then look at the centurion's response in verse 54. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Think about who's saying this. This is a centurion. This is a tough, hardened soldier. I mean, he does crucifixion. That's his work. That's his job. It's just, it's just Friday. It just happens for him. But yet, taking all this in, he is so impressed with Jesus. So here's this Gentile proclaiming, truly, this was the Son of God. I mentioned at the beginning of the message today that Jesus set an inspirational example showing us how we're supposed to live and die. Let me tell you about a man who I think did that very well. He learned the lesson. His name is Elmer Sennett. He taught elementary school. And he was a great teacher. Although his students were scared to death of him. But they also loved him. He's described as a kind of a, a, a difficult man and a loving man. In World War I, nerve gas caused his eyes to nearly close but he could see everything going on in the classroom. At his funeral, he arranged, you know that little card that sometimes is given out to everybody, a little synopsis of them, maybe, maybe the obituary? He had already written what he wanted on there. So on the front was his picture, and it said, if I could talk with you today, I'd want you to know, dot, 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 and then it continued on the back. Let me share what he wrote. That I valued your friendship, you brightened some dark moments in my life and provided strength and support when they were much needed. But I would want you to know about my most precious friend. You may remember me as a good man, but I want you to know that all the goodness and hope is a result of my relationship with Jesus Christ. When I was a very young man, I learned that being good enough isn't nearly good enough. Every man and woman has sinned. I learned that Jesus had taken my punishment when he suffered and died on the cross because of his sacrifice, I was reunited with God by simply trusting in this finished work and allowing Jesus complete control over my life. You cannot understand either my life or my death without knowing how central this decision was. Because when I accepted Christ as my Savior and Lord, I had hope, direction, and purpose throughout my life. Now in death, I am more alive than ever. Rejoice with me. I am at home in heaven with my greatest friend. That's how you die. 
Jesus set an example of how to live and how to die. In John chapter 15, verse 13, one last verse, I put it on the screen, but you know this one. After he tells us to obey him, if you love me, keep my commandments, he makes this statement, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. That's what Jesus did for you. Our song of invitation is to encourage you to acknowledge he did it for you. That on that day, at that moment, your sins were piled onto him and he died for you. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, let him wash you clean in baptism. Confess your faith. Let him make you a new creation and give you the gift of his spirit. Or if we can pray for you in any way, won't you come as we stand and sing to encourage Oh,